Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Well, the race to become the nominee for 2024 is underway in some interesting ways. A lot of nuances, a lot of pre-positioning going on, and there's a lot of lessons that we can look to from 2020. 2016, and even back to 2008 as these races begin to take shape. Today, we're going to focus on the Republican side of the aisle in terms of what that race is looking like, how things uh, are progressing moving forward, and what the strategy needs to be for anyone uh, to actually uh, be able to work their way through the process and become the nominee. So right now, of course, there are only two people on the GOP playing field for 2024, Shortly after the midterm elections last year, former President Donald Trump announced his second bid for the White House. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. And away he went. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the man expected to be the number one competitor to the former president, has been putting off questions about his potential run. Nikki Haley announced her presidential run today. Do you plan on following suit? (laughs) Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> I think inquiring minds already know uh, the Florida governor is off on a book tour, often a great way to start a presidential campaign. So we will continue to keep our eyes there. Also, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina has been traveling to places like, I don't know, Iowa. There aren't a lot of reasons to go to Iowa in January or February, uh, but the senator has been there. He also has a book out. Uh, He was asked uh, if his trip was an indication that he's running for president in 2024. As I have a chance to speak around the state and get feedback, it will inform and educate me on how to accomplish the mission that I really believe is the most important part of my life. Well, no one has announced that they will challenge the former president except former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Here was uh, her announcement earlier this month, her first big rally calling for a new generation of Republicans. And I have a particular message for my fellow Republicans. We've lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Our cause is right, but we have failed to win the confidence of a majority of Americans. Well, that ends today. If you're tired of losing, put your trust in a new generation. And if you want to win, not just as a party, but as a country, stand with me. We're really thrilled to have back on the program today Sarah Isker. Of course, she's the senior editor at The Dispatch. And if you haven't been to The Dispatch, you need to do that. Make it part of your day. Uh, great piece, Sarah. As we look at, of course, Nikki Haley is the only other person other than the previous president to get in the race thus far. 
And you have this great piece uh, about what Nikki Haley uh, can learn from Carly Fiorina, uh, who ran, of course, against Donald Trump back in 2016. And uh, welcome back to the show and uh, give us some perspective. Hi, thanks for having me so much. Um, yeah, it was a fun piece to write and certainly <laughs> sort of having to to relive some of those mon- uh, <laughs> moments from the 2015 campaign. I, I kept shuttling between, uh, you know, chuckling and enjoying the memories to sort of being horrified by them. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Those uh, all campaign men- memories, I think, are, are both uh, traumatic. <laughs> sometimes they're enjoyable. Yeah. You get a nice smirk and sometimes it just brings back all kinds of trauma. <laughs> Uh, well, walk us through that as uh, as you looked at that and what Nikki Haley, obviously, she's got a very tall task. I, I think uh, she recognizes that. I don't think there's any uh, delusions of grandeur there or an easy path forward. Uh, but there are some real lessons there that I think that you pointed out uh, from the Fiorina campaign that I think are, are really astute and, and really applicable to where things stand today. Yeah, I mean, look, there are so many similarities to the 2016 campaign for Nikki Haley. But there's also a lot of really relevant differences. And one of the relevant differences, of course, is that right now this is really um, feeling a lot more like the 2008 Democratic primary Mm. between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. There's two candidates that we're talking about all the time. They're way ahead in the polling. And in that sense, you know, if Nikki Haley is the John Edwards of this race, um, she's going to have to do a lot to break into that conversation. And that really brings us to what she can learn from 2016 and Carly Fiorina's race, because when we entered that, uh, there were 17 candidates at that point. Carly had incredibly low national name ID. You know, she was on the cover of a bunch of magazines in the 1990s when she took over (laughs) HP, but it's been a while. And so what was so much fun about that race is that our job was to get that earned media to break into a conversation that nobody else wanted us in. And um, that's where I was sort of providing some examples to Nikki Haley, because Donald Trump's attack on Carly Fiorina, and we all sort of remember the look at that face, that's not the face of someone who can be president, was obviously sexist, and it was attack on Carly because she was a woman, but it also provided an enormous opportunity for Carly. And when she was able to respond to it at that CNN debate in September, it launched her into the number two polling position right after Donald Trump. The problem was that it had been so effective for Carly. Donald Trump never talked about her again. None of the other candidates paid any attention to her moving forward. And we just sort of drowned in that silence. And that's where I think Nikki Haley can experience the biggest pitfall, which is you can sort of execute everything perfectly. But if you're not getting attacked, if you're not part of that conversation, uh, you just sort of disappear. And whether, you know, that applies to men and women. But, of course, I make some fun notes about uh, <laughs> the Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did backwards and in heels. I mean, there's so much truth to that as a female candidate, literally uh, and figuratively. But it comes with a lot of opportunities as a female candidate. Nikki Haley will get more attention um, because people are trying to see whether that's an asset or a downside and can she actually you know, make it as a female candidate in the Republican Party. Uh, she's going to have to find a way to leverage that 
to mm. squeeze into that conversation because I can assure you, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, they don't want her in that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I did want to give you bonus points for the uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers uh, quote, just because it is so ingrained in my head. You know, growing up with seven sisters, a mother, a wife, three daughters, and two granddaughters, um, I so get it. I so get it. <laughs> uh, but it- <laughs> well, I use this fun example from uh, that same CNN debate. You know, it was. I- I forget whether it's nine or ten candidates at that debate. I think ten. Ten, yeah. You know, so nine of them are male, and obviously they, you know, have a bathroom for the men. But they had to figure out what to do with Carly in a bathroom, and so they had built up this stage on the scaffolding so that Air Force One at the Reagan Library was in the background. Right. And so what they came up with was sort of a, I mean, it was a very nice porta potty, but it was basically a porta potty. And in order to get to it, Carly during a commercial break. We need to get down scaffolded, like, you know, like metal graded steps in heels. She was wearing pantyhose and like make it back up in time. And I was like, okay. So we practiced it many, many times. In the end, as you can imagine, Carly just held it for the debate. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Don't drink too much water. Uh, so all the things that you don't think about unless you're a staffer uh, behind the scenes on on all of those. So so let's go it, let's go into the staffer room and uh, behind the scenes. So if you're uh, if you're advising Nikki Haley now in terms of uh, really what you you just described, and that is that uh, neither the former president nor Ron DeSantis want Nikki Haley to be part of conversations. How does she assert herself into those? in a way that will either force reactions or force coverage. This is the problem that I think all of these candidates are having, whether you're Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or Mike Pence, uh, you know, Nikki Haley in her announcement, which is really the, the time where you're going to get the most time to yourself. You know, right. um, she's asked right away, what are your major policy differences with Donald Trump? And she says, I, you know, doesn't name any. That was such a missed opportunity to get into that conversation. Surely you can think of something. But even if you can't, then say, look, maybe it's not policy differences exactly, but I'll tell you I would have executed them a lot differently. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, any number of ways to say Donald Trump can't get elected again. He's not as effective as I am, or he's going to pursue things that aren't what I'm going to pursue. His priorities are different than mine. And instead, you have this 2016 problem where all of the candidates in 2016 uh, kept saying privately, um, well, I don't need to beat Donald Trump right now. I just need to get down to a two-man race with him, and then I can take him on. Well, ask Ted Cruz how that works. First of all, he never got into a two-man race with Donald Trump because John Kasich was there the whole time. Um, But even when he did, it was too late. The momentum was already there. It was May, uh, and he's in Indiana, you know, trying to shoot basketball hoops. Uh, So... Nikki Haley, I think, makes a huge mistake if she thinks she can just bide her time and wait for some opportunity for Ron DeSantis to get hit by a bus. Yeah, uh, It's unlikely to happen. And even if it does, just saying I'm no different than Donald Trump, then why would they elect you if right. Donald Trump's an option? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a huge pitfall that she has not found her way around yet. We're going to stay with the conversation uh, much more with Sarah Isger from the Dispatch coming up as we look towards 2024. Some fascinating lessons you don't want to miss. Stick around. We'll be right back. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. 
started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, if you're just joining us, we've been talking with Sarah Isger from the Dispatch, uh, talking about the campaigns for the presidential nomination for 2024. Of course, currently on the Republican side is where most of the action is happening. The former president, Donald Trump, announced back in November that he'll seek the White House once again. Nikki Haley, just a few weeks ago, decided that she would jump in, former U.N. ambassador, former governor of South Carolina. And as we were talking with Sarah Isger, we were talking about some of the things that Nikki Haley could learn from Carly Fiorina, who, as a female candidate in 2016, really had a moment where she was catapulted into second place in the polling. She got some attention. And then it was very interesting because then uh, then pre- then candidate Donald Trump didn't want to talk about her anymore. Uh, and the rest of the candidates kind of joined suit. And so it became harder to have a voice and to get that uh, perspective and get that uh, recognition and coverage that you so need as a candidate, especially running in a large field. Uh, so we're going to continue the conversation with Sarah Isger. And I, I asked Sarah uh, what she's watching in these early days. We talked about Nikki Haley in terms of uh, this moment where she kind of has this one-on-one moment with Donald Trump and uh, what she should be doing to maximize that, uh, even though the conversation is still really hyper-focused between the former president and the current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. And uh, so as we talked with Sarah, we started looking at, so what what comes next and, and what does that actually look like? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I am just I, – I can't – this 2008 Democratic model between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama for what we're doing right now. And I actually had two friends get into a bit of a uh, Twitter tip yesterday that I just have found so fascinating. So Jeb Bush endorsed Ron DeSantis. And one of my friends, Clark Neely from the Cato Institute, said this is ridiculous. Ron DeSantis is not a civil libertarian. He's not a conservative the way that we used to mean that term. How could Jeb Bush do something like this? Not in so many words, but that's what he said. And my other friend, uh, Oren Kerr, who's a law professor at Berkeley, said, look, this is a binary race at this point in the GOP primary. An endorsement of Ron DeSantis is actually just an anti-Trump endorsement. So those are your choices, Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. Only pick which one's worse. You don't need to pick which one's better. Uh, And so they went back and forth. The other guy uh, saying, no, 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 it's too early for that. That's some bank shot. You should pick the candidate you actually want to be president. And he said, in fact... I would make a bet that it's neither Trump nor DeSantis, but someone else in the field. And the Berkeley professor said, how about a hundred bucks? <laughs> <laughs> so they have a hundred bucks on the line for this bet of Trump or DeSantis versus the field. the field. And I wanted to figure out which of them was, you know, statistically more likely to be right. So Nate Cohn from the New York Times went back to the 1970s when our modern primaries started. And he found that about 50 percent, over a little over 50 percent of the time, 
the person who is in the lead in polling at this point, and really he means for the first six months of the year before, mm-hmm. uh, goes on to win 50% of the time. And 50% may not sound like much, but think how many candidates are in these primaries. Yeah. And 50% is a huge multiplier effect of whoever's in the lead. But that would still make my friend's bet pretty much a coin flip if the one friend didn't also get the number two guy in the polling. <laughs> so I decided to go back and see what number two, how number two performs, whether that's any help at all. And again, you look back at 2008, and I think it's a really fun race to look at because on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton was the strong front runner, very much looking like Donald Trump in the polling, in sort of the conversation, just the juggernaut that no one was super pumped about, mm-hmm. but everyone thought would win. Barack Obama, obviously, in that DeSantis position, the change candidate, younger, um, representing something, whatever you want that's different, that's what he'll be. (laughs) Uh, But look at the Republican side. In 2008, well, 2007 is what we're talking about, the polling leader was Rudy Giuliani for the whole front part. So right in both of these, 2008, neither of the front runners win. Mm. Um, So it's the other 50 percent of that Nate Cohn stat. But who's in the number two position for the first six months of the 2008 Republican primary? It's John McCain. And we don't think about that a lot because later on, you're going to see Mike Huckabee or Fred Thompson take over in the polling position. But for those first six months, the ones that we're talking about here that are most predictive, actually, John McCain was in the number two polling position. So, look, I think my buddy Oren Kerr has the better case here. He's the Berkeley <laughs> Law professor that this actually is a binary choice. But 100 bucks on the line. This is going to be a real Twitter bet to watch. Uh, Sarah, I didn't know you were the creator of Twitter tiffs or uh, big gambling sprees. So <laughs> you can add that to your resume now. <laughs> It'll be so important for Republicans, whether you're a grassroots person or a donor or just a voter. Mm. Is this a binary choice? Are you actually um, looking at DeSantis on the merits or is it do I like anyone better than Donald Trump? Uh, And and that's going to be the question, I think, for the next several months at this point. Great insight, as always. Sarah Isger, senior editor at The Dispatch. Uh, Appreciate the behind the scenes look today and some great insight and strategy as we March forward, marching towards 2024. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I think it's so interesting uh, what Sarah pointed out there from 2007. Uh, So, again, a little over a year before things really start heating up. And for the Republicans in 2007, Rudy Giuliani was the front runner. John McCain was number two. And then you had this uh, turnover after turnover uh, with uh, uh, Governor Huckabee and Fred Thompson, who was a senator. Uh, and a TV guy, and uh, everything just kind of kept churning over. Uh, similarly, Hillary Clinton was in a very commanding position at this point uh, in 2007, and of course ended up not winning the nomination. Uh, Barack Obama uh, ran away with that and, and ended up being the nominee and the president twice. Uh, so it's so interesting to look at all of those things in terms of perspective and uh, what that actually is going to mean for the long haul Uh, But I think there's some really important lessons there in terms of how you go about this. One of the things that Sarah pointed out uh, that I really loved is that regardless of who you are and when you get in, uh, you have to have a differentiator, especially if it's a large field. Uh, We always say in the face of overwhelming similarity, even slight differences are always perceived as more valuable. And so if you're in a race and you have 10 candidates or 16 candidates and you're all saying, well, I don't really have any policy differences Uh, That's fine. That's overwhelming similarity. 
But you have to recognize and find out what is the difference maker for you. And if you question that at all, just just walk down the potato chip aisle today on your way home. Uh, just walk down there and you'll see all these things that are overwhelmingly the same. But you'll see all kinds of attempts to show you that they are more valuable or better. And it might be 50% more, new great taste, lower fat, uh, all of the different things that can differentiate. And I think it was one of the things that Nikki Haley missed in her rollout uh, when she was asked if there was any policy differences or what the differences were between her and the former president. And she kind of got stumped on that. Uh, She should have had a laundry list, even if she wanted to say, Economic policy, we're going to be the same, but I'm going to do this, or I'm going to implement it this way, or my focus is going to unite the country in this way, or I'm going to help the business community that way. Uh, So even where there are similarities, you still have to differentiate. And I think that was the miss for the uh, Haley campaign uh, early on, that there were opportunities to differentiate that I think think she actually missed out on. And so it will be interesting to see how she recalibrates. Be interesting to see what uh, Ron DeSantis does in terms of uh, his book tour, which he has launched now. So he'll be on that for a little bit. And uh, all indications uh, from everybody I've been talking to uh, is that he will definitely wait until after the Florida uh, legislative session is over, which is the end of May. And so the earliest I think we'll have a definitive announcement from Ron DeSantis would be early June. And so we'll continue to watch that. And then, of course, there's a host of others uh, that are out there. Tim Scott uh, is making the rounds. He's been to Ohio or excuse me, to Iowa in January and New Hampshire in January. Uh, it's not Hawaii or Belize. Uh, those are cold places uh, in a cold time of the year. And he's there to have conversations really about the presidency of the United States. Uh, and Tim Scott has a very compelling story. And again, it will be interesting to see what's his positioning, what's his framing, how does he go about that, what's the story that he's going to tell. Uh, But again, we have to remember that things will change significantly. Uh, Just as Sarah pointed out, the the more uh, likely or the better scenario to compare this all to is not 2020 for the Democrats or 2016 for the Republicans. It's actually 2008 on the Democratic side where Hillary Clinton at this point of the game was overwhelming in command uh, to be the nominee for the Democrats. And, of course, we know uh, that that didn't turn out well for Hillary Clinton, but turned out really well for then-Senator Barack Obama. And so lots to happen, lots to change there. Remember, on the Republican side in 2007, Rudy Giuliani had a big lead. John McCain was in second, and there were a host of others uh, that were just jumping in. So a lot of churn, a lot to happen. The most important thing for me is what are the conversations, what are the principles, what are the policies that we're going to get to? Let's get out of just the political chatter. Uh, How are they going to lead, and what is the difference that's going to make for your kitchen table and your community? All right, we'll step aside for a quick commercial break. Much more to come on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Stick around. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.